0: verses 1 all the way down to verse 12. It says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty, That we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich, in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we just thank you so much for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the Word of God who reveals Christ to us, and we thank you for the Spirit of God who teaches us and gives us hearing ears, seeing eyes. Who opens up our understanding to be able to know the things of God that spiritually discern that we in our flesh cannot ever understand rightly. Lord, we just thank you for the day that we have together. We thank you for these brethren that are here, these sisters. Lord, we thank you for the uh, opportunities that we always have to come and to worship together as we gather as a church. Lord, we just are grateful For that privilege that we still have. Uh, And Lord we just pray that you would continue to grant us that freedom in this country. To be able to freely assemble together and worship you. Lord we thank you for the rain that you brought us last night. It was very much needed and we just thank you for that. (coughs) And we thank you now for the time that we have together around your word. We pray Lord that you would speak to us. We ask that (laughs) the Holy Spirit would be among us that he would grant me clarity of thought and mind, that he would give me the words to say. Father, that he would keep me to the truth and keep me from error. Lord, I pray for these that are here that you might speak and minister to them. I ask, Lord, that you just might edify your people. Lord, I pray for those that may be your elect among us, that you have yet to grant repentance and faith, Lord, that they might turn and trust in you. They might uh, look to you solely for their salvation, Father. And then we pray that they, in obedience to your command, might come and that they might present themselves and profess Christ Jesus publicly and that they might be baptized and added to the church. Lord, we just ask that you just might grant those things in your sovereign will, uh, if that be your will. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for your blessings that you've given to us in this life and as a church as well. Lord, we pray for those that are out here in Joplin uh, who are your sheep, who desire to hear the truth of your sovereign grace in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would bring them uh, and gather them to your fold here. Uh, Lord, that they might not only be edified by the truth, but, Lord, that they might uh, they might join in the labors of spreading the gospel uh, in our community. And uh, wherever that you might see fit to take us, Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do and all that you are. You are great and wonderful and mighty. You are holy and without blame, but yet you are also full of judgment and that you are true and righteous and that sin will be punished. And we know that you will, in Christ, punish all your elect, which you have already done. And, Lord that it has already been laid to their account. But Father, there comes a day that we look forward to that all the wicked will be gathered and they will be judged in sin and death and hell and Satan and all the demons will be cast into eternal torment and that we will be with Christ forever. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So be with us now and help us that we might worship You as You would have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Isaiah 53, we're going to be looking at this today, brethren, and, uh, I actually, uh, had my mind set on, uh, looking at, uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you want to just kind of keep your hand there in Isaiah 53 and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I was actually looking at, maybe speaking this morning on, uh, uh Philippians chapter 2 and verse, uh, Five, starting at verse 5, I just want to read this and I'll tell you where my mind went and how I think that the Lord was directing me to other things and what I wanted to do. Uh, in verse 5 it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found fat in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was what I was actually going to preach on this morning, but as I got I got to looking at that this morning and studying on that uh, a little more and kind of trying to expand some verses dealing with uh, the content of this, um, what really stuck out to me is this seventh verse, but he made himself of no reputation... And took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And as I began to look at that, my mind went to Isaiah 53 because here we see uh, the suffering servant that God had uh, laid our iniquities upon in full detail, matter of fact. Um, and so I began reading through Isaiah 53 this morning whenever I Went down to study after I got ready and the more I kind of contemplated on this, the more it just seemed that this was what the Lord was wanting me to to dwell upon. Uh, I I bring up Philippians because of this. A lot of people think that in verse 7 when it says, well actually in verse 6 it says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Y'all see that verse there? You see what it says? It says that even though he was, or who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The newer translations that are out there says that, said that, uh, uh, who being in the form of God, uh, thought equality with God, equality with God was something that could not be grasped. And that's just totally opposite of what this verse says. Jesus said, hey, me being equal with God, that's not robbing God of any glory or blasphemy. You know, they they charged Jesus with blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And they said, you're a mere man, claim to be God. And he's saying, you know, me being a mere man, not a merman, or a... What's the on Spongebob? Mermaid man. <laughs> a mare. M-E-R-E. A mare man. Um, a common man. Okay. Uh, you being a common man, how can you make yourself to be God? Well, Jesus, while he was man, he was not a common man. Uh, he was God man. And so that's what this is saying right here. That God... That Jesus didn't think that it was robbery to claim to be God, even though he was clothed with humanity, because he was clothed with humanity in his role as becoming the servant. He was serving God in the purpose of redemption by coming as the elect's substitute. And he came in their fashion. He came in their form. He, he assumed a body like them. Okay? He assumed the body uh, of the elect. Now, I believe that this body was given to him before the foundation of the world. Uh, I believe that he took on uh, manhood before the foundation of the world as he stood as our surety, uh, as the only mediator between God and man uh, at that time. And I believe that 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 which was already given manhood was born of a virgin, and I believe that the Holy Spirit overshadowed uh Mary, and that what was formed in her or was made in her was that very man, Christ Jesus, uh, who God had uh, before the foundation of the world possessed and set up uh, before anything was created and so I believe in the virgin birth, I believe that he was born of Mary. I don't believe that he received anything from Mary. As far as his manhood is concerned, otherwise he would be of the earth, earthy, where the Bible says he was the man from heaven, uh, and that he was spiritual. But that's another subject for another day. My point is, is that he made himself of no reputation comes right after that. And in those other translations that say that he thought equality with God is something that could not be grasped, it then says, but made himself of no reputation, and then they take that as he divested himself, or he laid down all of his godhood to come as man. And that's not what happened. Christ never did divest himself of any of his godly uh, characters or attributes. He was fully God. Even though he was man, he was fully God. He was still omnipotent, he was still um uh, uh, uh omniscient he was still uh, the lord of all he still had power over death and hell and he had uh, power over the demons he had uh creative power he had power to be able to kill and to, and to make alive he had all the powers of God he had all the the, uh, the attributes that God has he was without sin he was perfect he was righteous he was holy he had all the attributes of God. Yet the Bible says that he made himself of no reputation. That means he didn't puff himself up. He didn't come as the religious leaders did. He didn't come on display as making making something known of himself. But he came in a lowly way. He came in fashion uh, of a man, for one. And not only that, he came as a man who was not really stirring a lot of stuff or bringing a lot of attention to himself he came in a meagerly way he was born in a manger now we've all we've grown up in this day and age where we've made this to look like some you know really cool thing that you know Jesus was in this little hut with a little manger and some nice little straw there and he was laying there and everything was perfect and listen he was in a barn in a stable where they kept animals and fed animals and animals Pooped and all that kind of stuff in there. That's where he was born. He was born in a manger and and that manger is what they put the hay in for the animals to eat out of. That's what a manger is. A manger is not a cradle for a baby. (laughs) A manger is a place for where they put junk for the animals to eat. And that's where he was laid. And that's where he was. That's how he came. Right after that he had; they had to leave and flee to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him. And there they stayed there for several years and then they came back and at that point then he was raised as a carpenter's son living in Galilee. Place of nowhere, not, of no importance to the people of those days and around that area. It was uh, insignificant. Matter of fact, uh, Galilee, Nazareth, all those areas over there, I mean, even, they even said, you know, can anything good come from that place? Whenever they heard about this man coming from there, he said, anything good come from there? He came with no reputation. He didn't build himself up and make himself look known like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees and all those religious leaders did, walking around in their big regal robes and uh, making themselves look good with all their jewels and crowns and things that they wore and... All the stuff that they portrayed themselves to make them look important, Jesus didn't come like that. And He made Himself of no reputation. But it says, and being found in the fashion of man, He humbled Himself. And that's what this whole 53rd Psalm is all about, is the fact that Jesus made Himself of no reputation because it pleased the Lord to send Him in such a way. It pleased God "...to take on flesh, and to come as us, his elect, and be the substitute for us, to live in our place, so that righteousness could be established, and so that it could be imputed to all his elect, and so that his death would also be the penalty paid for every sin that his people had ever committed." And so Christ came in that fashion... In that way, he didn't say, I'm going to lay down my godhood so I can come and be man. No, it was God who stooped and became a servant to himself, first and foremost. He became a servant to God in serving God's purpose of election and serving God's eternal purpose of redemption of his people, which is God's purpose of election. But he was serving God's purpose, but in doing so he also came and was a servant unto his own people. He came to serve them as their mediator, as their intercessor, as their substitute. And that's what we find here. Look at verse 1. It says, Who had believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That is a great question whenever we understand that throughout all of the Old Testament time, what the people of the New Testament time had in mind that the Old Testament time preachers were preaching was that there was this great Messiah who was going to come into them. He was going to come in regal robes and that he was going to come with a rod of iron and he was going to come in this majestic and magnificent way and destroy all their enemies and take Israel who had now become just a, a clustered little group of people there in the Middle East. Who the Romans were, uh, oppressing and that every other group of people around them had oppressed them, the Babylonians and, and everybody else who had oppressed them for years, the Egyptians, all these people who had oppressed them for years and years and years, they were going to be destroyed and Christ was going to come and lift Israel out of the, out of the oppression and set them on thrones and make them priests, kings over the nations and they was going to rule with Christ with an rod of iron and they was going to be prestigious and everyone was going to bow to them. And listen, that's still the mentality of the Zionists. That's still the mentality of dispensationalists who believe that one of these days all that's going to transpire in days in future. <clears throat> but what Messiah was was not what they thought. And whenever Messiah came in that meek and lowly way, who had no reputation, they's like, "What are you talking about? That's our Savior. That's not our Savior. You mean to tell me this man from Galilee, this guy that has nothing, doesn't even have his own home? The Bible says that he that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but he doesn't have any place to lay his head. He doesn't have anywhere to call his own. Doesn't have any any money. Doesn't have any." Doesn't have any of that stuff. Doesn't have any fancy clothes. He hasn't been called. Doesn't have a doctorate degree. All he is is just this lowly man from Galilee. You're telling me that's our Messiah? And besides that, this man has now been taken and been charged with blasphemy from our religious leaders. I think our religious leaders know. They study the Word of God and they've been to seminary. They know what the Bible says and they know what our Messiah is going to be like and so they have told us that this man's a blasphemer so we probably ought to listen to them because they know the scriptures better than anybody else. And this man has been taken and has been beaten and even the Romans think this man deserves to die which we found out Pilate really didn't think he needed to die but yet he put him up there anyway. And here he is hanging on a cross. The Bible says that uh, curse is anything that hangs on a tree. That's our Messiah? Our Messiah is the one that's hanging on a tree? How can that be? That can't be our Messiah. And you're telling me that by him dying that I can be saved. That I'm saved by that. By that man hanging on a tree. That's how I'm saved. And I don't have to do nothing Surely that's not true. Our religious leaders have told us our whole entire life that we have to be holy and we have to be righteous and that we have to strive for perfection and that we have to do everything that the law tells us to do so that we can be accepted by God and that we can be, uh, uh, that we can be, uh, kept by God. Because if we don't, then we lose it. And so you're telling me all I have to do is trust that what this lowly man from Galilee who's hanging on that tree that he is my Savior and that what he has done is all I need to trust in? Who hath believed our report? Who hath believed that this thing can be the gospel? You're telling me the gospel is there was a man who hung on a tree and died and resurrected And that's all, I just have to believe that what he did is all and I don't have to do anything. See, brethren, that's where our flesh, that's where our Adamic nature comes in. Our Adamic nature always, always, always wants to look at self-righteousness instead of Christ-righteousness. It always wants to think that salvation comes by something that I have to accomplish Or someone who I have to be in order to be accepted or kept by God. And so that question is a very profound question. Who hath believed our report? And the answer to that, as I've mentioned to you guys and preached here often, the answer to that report is the second question that is asked. Is found in the second question that is asked. Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The ones who believe the report that Christ alone is our righteousness are the ones to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The power of the Lord. The arm of the Lord Speaks of the power of the Lord, the power of God. And the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The good news, the good news of what? Of Jesus alone for righteousness. The gospel is about a person, it isn't about a duty or an action that you do. The gospel is not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel was actually preached before Peter ever said believe and be baptized or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The gospel was preached before that and the people whose ears had been opened and eyes had been opened and heart had been, re- had been, uh, uh, uh had been uh, made anew had the, the old heart taken out and the new heart put in whenever that person who had been uh, converted of God given spiritual understanding spiritual eyes, spiritual ears whenever that person had been quickened of God to be able to know these things, whenever that gospel was preached, the question was, well what must we do? as is just about everybody's question, always is, is what do we have to do? Why? Because that's the first thing that the flesh thinks to do. Well, obviously we have to do something if we're going to get that. We have to do something for it. And the thing that Paul, that Peter, that James, that John, that all the apostles, that all the evangelists of that first church that all the churches that Christ has preserved through every generation down to our day continues to declare in the good news or in the gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. Because the only ones who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are those who have been saved. See, what must I do to be saved? Nothing. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. See, you don't do anything to get saved. Saved is something that happens to you and therefore fruits come from that salvation you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. First is salvation secured by Christ Jesus. Then there is belief upon Christ which is granted and given by Jesus. Jesus gives us that. But see, people can't believe that. They can't believe that unless the arm of the Lord is revealed. Who shall believe our report and unto whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, the arm of the Lord is revealed to those who are His. The Bible says that, that all the elect of God are going to come to Him, are going to be given to believe that He has granted unto them repentance and faith. That he has given unto them a measure of faith and that that faith is a gift of God. It's not of works. It's not of our own doing. It's not, it isn't something that the natural man has. The natural man does not have faith that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual gift that is given to spiritual people who have been given spiritual life from the Spirit of God alone. Who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's who will believe the report. And now he's going to give us the report, though. Now he's going to tell us what the report is. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. What is that talking about? Well, that's talking about the Lord Jesus again, in this calmly nature. This nature. What does the word calmly mean? Something that's not extravagant, right? Uh, in extravagance. Okay? Uh, he he came with no uh, no form or no comeliness, no extravagance, no no pomp and circumstance, no pomp and glory. Okay? He wasn't a he wasn't a man that everyone was going, hey boy, that's a good looking guy. Hey man, that guy he looks he looks like somebody we could trust. He looks like somebody we can follow. Now there wasn't nothing about him that even seemed to be... He just was common, what what he was. He says, For he shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now, what's the illustration that God is trying to point to us here? Well, you would think God coming into the world would come with, again, pomp and glory, right? Here's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, The God of the universe. The creator of all things. And he is coming into his creation. But yet, he didn't come with all that stuff. He came humbled as a servant. He came clothed with humanity. And just like, you know, out here in our yard, it's been dry. It rained last night, which we needed tremendously. But our yard has been dry as a bone. And, I mean, it's just been, the grass has been crispy, the ground is just hard, and it hasn't had any water on it. But yet, whenever a blade of grass or whatever it is that's growing first comes up out of that dry ground, it doesn't come out full of fruit or vegetables or whatever Mm -hmm. is growing on it, flowers, right? My wife, she has flowers, she has vegetables and plants and stuff and everything. Whenever she plants that and those things start coming out, although she's gotten to the point now where she goes and buys her plants already planted and halfway grown. But some of them she plants. Um, But whenever she plants those plants, what happens? First comes the first comes the little leaf, or the stalk, or first comes the, 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 the just the little blade, then the stalk, and Then the fruit, right? The blade comes out. Whenever it comes out, you almost can't even tell what it's going to be. It's just plain. It's just a plain blade that comes out. Well, that's what the Lord is trying to get us to understand here. Is whenever Jesus came, He didn't come in all this pomp and glory. He came robed as a servant. He came in comeliness, uh, or in a, and with no comeliness. Says "...and when we shall see Him. There is no beauty that we should even desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. We know that during his life here, he was despised and rejected of his own people. They didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They rejected him, especially the religious leaders. They rejected him. It says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Often we see in the scriptures how the Lord, while He was here, was full of sorrows for the things that He saw. The unbelief that was in the people. The, uh, uh, the unbelief in His own people. Uh, His elect. That, uh, uh, you know, can you imagine Peter, His right hand man. Whom he had promised the Lord. It don't matter what happens, Lord. I'm always going to be here right beside you. I'm going to take care of you. Nothing's going to happen to you. And Jesus told him, he said, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about. He said, tonight, before the cock crows three times and by the morning, you're going to deny Or by the time the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. He's like, I can't ever be. I ain't ever going to, you know what happened, exactly what the Lord said. Can you imagine Christ at that very point whenever he was being tried and convicted uh, among these men who were blaspheming him and telling lies and untruths about him and whenever whenever Peter was asked, hey, don't you know this man? Don't, weren't you one of his followers? And he rejected him once, rejected him twice, third time the Bible says he rejected him with cursings. I mean, it wasn't just, hey, I don't know that man. It was like with cursings. You know, GDU, I don't know this effing man. Whatever the cursings was, I don't know what he said, but, you know, he did it with cursings. You know? Can you imagine that? Being the Lord. Can you imagine? Here's your deepest friends all scattering. In your time of crucifixion and your being beat and crucified, and everyone that you know, everyone that you love, everyone that you've invested three and a half years of teaching and nurturing and just being there for them, healing the sick, healing the blind, raising the dead, doing all these miraculous things and pointing people to God, telling them about their salvation, and yet here at the... Time that Christ was at the point of despair, not despair, he wasn't in despair, but he truly was uh, in a point where uh, he was rejected, full of sorrow, and all of his friends left him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't make anything of him. Look at verse 4. He said, Surely. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, here's the very nature of His substitution for us. The Bible says in James that He was tempted like us; that in every facet He was tempted like us, yet without sin. He knows exactly what it means to be like us. He felt our sorrow. He felt our grief. He has felt our hardships. He has felt our our. Um, uh, 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 limitations, so to speak. He knows what it's like to be who we are, except without sin. He never knew sin. He never was sinful. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful nature urging him to involve himself in sinful activity. <clears throat> Just a side note, the, the temptations that Christ endured was not temptations... To try to get him to sin, and those temptations that were given him, he could have actually indulged in if he wanted to. Those temptations, and people will say, well then it wasn't true temptation if he could have, couldn't have sinned, which I will clearly say, Christ could never have sinned. Christ could never have sinned. He's impeccable. But folks say that that, temp- that makes his temptation by the devil and the temptations that he faced while on earth are worthless, useless, because what good is having the temptation if you never could in- engage yourself in it? It's just, you know, useless temptation. Rather, the reason the temptations were given to Christ is to show the validity of who he is is to show that He is without sin and therefore qualified to be our Savior. Qualified to be our Master, our sin-bearer. Because only a spotless lamb can be saved. And what did we see by the religious Pharisees? we seen on the outside men who had kept the law, who looked righteous, who might be considered without sin. But yet Jesus exposed them... Saying that inside, you may on the outside look like whitewashed sepulchres. You may look clean and without sin on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. You are dead on the inside. There is sin inwardly. Even though you might clean yourself up on the outside, there is sin on the inside, and therefore you are still wicked and in need of salvation. See, that's why the law can never do anything for us. Because the flesh is weak. We can't do anything. The flesh is full of sin and that's all it can do. Whether it's outward sin or inward sin, it's all sin in the flesh. It's all we can do. And so Christ, him enduring those temptations, was not to endure so he can, like, and I really would like to do that, but I'm not because I'm going to stay true to God and I'm going to, you know, be a great example to my people. He did stay true to God, and he is an example to his people, but it's an example of God in the flesh. See, we can have confidence that Jesus Christ is God because temptation could find nothing in him. The Bible says that Satan and, and temptation found nothing in him. What does that mean when the Bible says that? It found nothing in him. It means there was no sin to tempt the Bible, there was no lust to tempt. The Bible says in James, how is a man drawn away in sin? It says that he is drawn away by his own lusts. And whenever that lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. See, Jesus could have never sinned because He never had lust in His heart. He never had anything in there for sin to tempt. For Satan to tempt. For the things of this world to tempt. He was perfect and holy and righteous. He was God. There was no unrighteousness in Him. There was no sinfulness in Him. Therefore, His temptations prove this is the Messiah. This is God manifested in the flesh. This is our suffering substitute. The perfect Lamb of God. He had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows so in all of that, in him coming and experiencing all the things that he has experienced on our behalf for us, yet we did esteem, esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's how the people looked at him. Look at that. Whenever he was hanging on the cross, remember? He was hanging on the cross. They were blaspheming Him. They were laughing at Him, mocking Him. If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. He saved others. How come He can't save Himself? They just esteemed Him as stricken and smitten of God, another afflicted man. But look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He wasn't wounded because he was some stricken and smitten person for nothing. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was on that cross for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. He wasn't there for his own. Or for anything that he had done. He wasn't there because he broke the law and therefore needed to be punished by the religious people or Rome. Rome couldn't find nothing wrong with him. The religious leaders really couldn't find nothing wrong with him so they had to plant false accusations against him. They just didn't want, they wanted him out of the way. He was a, a burr under their saddle. He was a hindrance to their mission to keep power over the people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. What does that mean? The chastisement of our peace. That means that the Lord was chastened or the Lord experienced uh, that uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, punishment so that we might have peace. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. Now, I want to make a side note here. That verse there, Isaiah 53, 5, is often used, especially by the charismatics and the faith healers and the TV preachers and all that kind of stuff. This verse is used to say that by the stripes on Jesus' bag, by His crucifixion, that He has purchased healing for everybody. That if we will just have faith and pray for that healing, that God will heal us of every infirmity that we might have, because by his stripes we are healed. And so we just have to believe that. If we believe that, then we'll be healed. And that's what all these faith healers are using this verse for. But brethren, this is not talking about physical healing as far as an ailment. If I've got, you know, diabetes, if I have enough faith that by his stripes he's healed those diabetes. I just need to believe it. Do I believe that Jesus can heal my diabetes without me taking a pill or going and doing anything else? Absolutely I do. Does God do miraculous healing? Absolutely He does. I believe that He can heal and do whatever He wants to do. But is that what this verse is talking about? No, it's not. We are not guaranteed healing in the crucifixion of Jesus. In a physical way. Matter of fact, many times we've seen in the Bible there were men who were sick, who were needy, who were people of God. Paul left one of his friends who was sick, who Paul himself could have... He was an apostle. He could have healed him, but he didn't. Left him sick. him. told Timothy... Take a little wine with your stomach when you don't feel good. It'll help you. (gasps) Preachers tell people to drink wine. The Bible Bible says it's alright. Healing is not guaranteed because Christ died. What is this talking about? How are we healed? We're healed in the spiritual way. We're healed in the fact that we are the ones who have transgressed God. We are the ones who have uh, had iniquities. And God has healed us of that by causing us to be born again. He has given us eternal life. He has caused us to be something other than this outward Adamic shell As all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every one of God's elect, just like the reprobate, have had their conversation or had their lifestyle in sin. And by the flesh we continue to sin. Many times we sin sins that just like the people out there who are reprobates, they sin sins. We pray that the Lord continues to restrain those sins. We pray that the Lord will give us a heart and a mind to, to desire righteousness and holiness. But the fact remains that this flesh can do nothing but sin. And it's only by God's overcoming power that he restrains us from doing any more sinning than we would normally do. We have all gone astray. Every elect child of grace has gone astray. But God has laid all those iniquities upon Christ. Everyone. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. That that right there was a prophecy about Christ. All this is a prophecy about Christ, but... That right there is a prophecy about Christ and that actually came true. The Bible tells them in the New Testament that whenever he was being tried, that he didn't defend himself. Whenever they were railing all their accusations against him, he never did open up his mouth and say, that's not true, no, no, let me tell you the truth, let me set you straight. He didn't do that. The only time that he opened up his mouth and said anything during all those proceedings is they they wanted to know directly, Are you who you say you are? Jesus told him the truth. Whenever Pilate questioned him, he didn't answer nothing, but whenever he started saying, don't you know that I have power to keep you or release you? And Jesus said, you don't have any power except what's been given to you by my Father in heaven. He never did defend himself. He never did try to retaliate. He never did debate these guys. Listen, he could have said on every one of them. Well, matter of fact, he could have just spoke the word and all of them could have disintegrated right before him. But he never said anything. Why? Because the purpose of God according to election in God's eternal purpose was that Christ come and die. God purposed the death of Christ by these wicked men's hands. God purposed evil so that Christ would be evil evilly, if you allow me that word, evilly, wickedly, taken and killed. Although the Bible tells us that no man killed him, he gave up his life. He didn't die from from the triage of the sufferings of his wounds. The Bible says that he gave up the ghost. Whenever he had suffered to the point whenever he experienced all of God's wrath and there was nothing more to be done, he cried, It is finished. So there was no more need for him to continue in the way that he was going, to endure any more pain because he had taken everything, whatever it was. Was it the pain of the cross? I don't know. Was it the weight of the load that he was taking, bearing upon the sins, and God's turning his back upon him? For that whatever amount of that, that allotted amount of time that God turned his back and darkness fell upon the earth? Was that the weight of the load? And once that was done, I don't know. I don't know the full spectrum of how it was. All I know is what Christ did in his death satisfied God's wrath. And whenever it was completely filled up to the point where God was satisfied. Jesus said it is finished and at that point there's no need to continue on with the suffering. He gave up the ghost and that body that he inhabited it died. The soldiers didn't kill him. The whippings on the back didn't kill him. The nails through his arms didn't kill him. They didn't break his legs like they did the other guys. He died by giving up his ghost by removing himself from the body. Now he resurrected, no doubt about that. That body came forth out of the grave, no doubt about that. But the Bible says that he give up the ghost. He says he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? What's that mean? He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? That don't even seem like it goes together. It don't make any sense. you ever thought about that? He was taken from judgment and from prison. And taken to what? Well, the verse right before. As a sheep led to the slaughter, right? A lamb led to the slaughter. He was taken to be killed. And what was the promise? Well, the promise to Abraham was by your one seed, there was going to be thousands of seeds from every nation. But yet, right here, and at Jesus' time, this was only being done among the Jews. Some Gentiles had been included, but primarily this was to the Jews. The gospel hadn't went out to the nations. And so, what what about the promise to Abraham? Where's his seed gonna be? Who's gonna who's gonna declare or who's gonna proclaim this to his seed? Who's gonna where's his seed gonna be? Where's the generation that's gonna come from this man? Why does he ask that question? Well, look at the next part of that. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Well, obviously he can't have a seed if he's dead if I would have died in 1995, Mm -hmm. none of you kids would have been here. My seed wouldn't have been here. Why? Because my first child was born in 2000. If I would have died in 1995, none of my seed would be made manifest. That's the question here. Where's this seed that's going to be as many as the sands of the shores, the stars in the heavens that no man can number that is going to be from every tribe and language tongue, how is that going to be declared if this man dies? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, whose people is it everyone in the world? No, it was for the transgression of my people. Whenever we look back and he said that he, he was, he died for the transgressors. When he bore the iniquities of the transgressors, everyone wants to say, well hey, everybody's the transgressor. Everyone from Adam is a transgressor. So that means he died for everybody. But looky here. He says that he, for the transgressions of my people, was he stricken. His people are the ones that he loved before the foundation of the world who he gave to Christ. Who Christ assumed the role of mediator and intercessor and substitute, surety for, and he received them and they were united to him. He became their advocate. He says, and he was... And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. We know that to be true as well. His grave was among the wicked. They went out and buried him among the wicked. However, it was from a rich man's tomb that he was buried. Remember uh, remember Joseph of Arimathea? He was the one who went and pled for the body of Jesus and he was a rich man, a well-known man, and Joseph of Arimathea uh, gave his tomb that he had for Jesus to be buried in. And that's where they laid Jesus. So, it says here, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Now, there's probably more to that than I, I understand, but... On the surface, we know that to be true. And with the rich, or excuse me, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. So here again, we see that Jesus was wrongly beaten and crucified because there was never any violence nor deceit found in him. Look at verse 10. Yet, in all that, all this wrongdoing, all this stuff that was happening with Christ, him taking on the form of a servant, Him coming in, in fleshly robes, Him coming and, and and being without any pomp and glory, Him coming and being despised and rejected and feeling our afflictions and our sorrows and taking upon our, our, Himself our sins and being beat and rejected and scorned and blasphemed and scoffed at and mocked and nailed to a cross The Bible says, yet it pleased the Lord to do this, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. See, why those wicked men, by their wicked hands, took Jesus and put him through this grief, the Bible says ultimately it was the Lord who put him to grief. You see that there? I hope that all those who think that God doesn't predestinate and bring about sin and evil in this world by his providence, can understand that whenever people preach these things and they want to immediately jump to, well, you make God to be the author of sin. What does that mean? The Bible doesn't ever say that. What does that mean? You have to tell me what that means. If you mean that God becomes a sinner, absolutely, he never becomes a sinner. I I will stand beside you and fight that fight all day, every day. God in no way, shape, or form has ever sinned, will ever sin, or can ever sin. Everything that He does is holy and righteous. Even if what He does is holy and righteous, and even what we do that He tells us not to do that He can do, what we do might be sin. Or is sin. But it says here, He hath put Him to... Grief. When thou. Who's thou the Lord? That's that's being talked to here. When the Lord shall make his soul. An offering for sin. He shall see his seed. Here we go. Through the death. Through the burial. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how his seed. You remember the question? Who shall declare his generation? What's going to come of the seed? How is his seed going to be perpetuated through all the earth if he dies? You know the Bible teaches a principle. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it standeth alone, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth fruit. Whenever you put a seed into the ground, that decaying and that rotting of that seed, that's what breaks forth and brings forth that little shoot of new life. And out of that little shoot, what happens? Whenever your mom plants a tomato plant out here and out of that thing shoots this little shoot, out of that one seed that's planted, what happens? You get how many tomatoes? A lot of tomatoes. And what's inside those tomatoes? More seeds. How many seed do you think is in a tomato about that big? A bunch. Let's just say twenty seeds. There's usually more than that. How many how many tomatoes do you think is in that one seed among those twenty? Much less the twenty. Let's say that one seed produces twenty, but now you got twenty seeds. Twenty seeds producing twenty. That's four hundred, right? Now we have four hundred out of one seed, and more, more on that. You know, more, more than that. Unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abideth alone. Unless Christ Jesus came and died, there could be no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then all is dead. If there is no resurrection, there is no life. Jesus said, if Christ raiseth not, then all of our faith is in vain, because Christ is still dead. But it is in that resurrection that it shows forth not only that God accepted this sacrifice, but in that resurrection we raise to newness of life in Him. We raise and eternal life was given by Christ. That's where the seeds came. The little shoot out of the ground. He came in a physical way as a shoot coming out of the ground calmly and nothing. But whenever he as a seed was buried in the ground after dying the death that he died and was raised, that brought forth fruit. That's why every one of us who are the elect of God are here today. That's why any of the elect of, of God are, are, are who they are. Who have ever been given faith in Christ Jesus. Because the one seed died and was raised. All the seeds have died and was raised and are bringing forth fruit unto God. Look what it says here. "It he it pleased the Lord to, breathe, uh, to bruise him and he had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed... So see, through the death of Christ, God sees his seed. It's going to continue on. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper, shall prosper in his hands. Not one of those seeds, not one of those elect, not one of those children of God will not be brought forth. Okay? Every child will be brought forth to believe to come to Him and will be returned. Jesus said, all that you have given Me, I have lost none. All that the Father hath given Me shall come to Me, and all that come to Me, I will in no wise cast out, but I will raise them up at the last day. He shall see the travail of His soul. He shall prolong His days And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. The pleasure of the Lord was the redemption of His people, of the elect of God. The pleasure of the Lord was that we should be saved. And through Christ we were, brethren. Look at verse 11. He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied through the travail of Christ on the cross. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Therefore, we can place probably in there, but it says, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant. There's that word. That's probably why the Lord directed me to Isaiah 53 from Philippians 3. He humbled himself as a servant. And here we see, therefore, or by his knowledge, Shall my righteous servant justify many? For he shall bear their iniquities. Is he going to justify everybody through his death? No. He's going to justify many. Who are the many? The ones that he talked about just before that. The ones that are what? His people. The transgressions of his people was the reason that he died. Therefore, by that death, dying for them, he justifies the same people that he died for. Everybody for whom Christ died receives the benefit for why Christ died. Christ died to justify them. So if he died to justify them, if God accepts that sacrifice, which we know that the Bible says that he did, then he, or excuse me, then they are justified. So we have to take two sides, one of two sides here. You either have the side that we preach, that there is the elect that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, and they are the only ones who will receive salvation, and the rest will be damned. And those are the only ones for whom Christ died. Those are the only ones for whom God shed his or uh, set his love upon and therefore that Christ died for, and therefore will be saved. Them and only them. And God is sovereignly right to do so, or sovereignly uh, sovereign to do so. His right to do that is His and His alone. But then you have the opposite end. If Christ dies for everybody, and Christ's death justifies those for whom He died, then everybody is justified. Therefore, everybody is being saved. Everybody's saved. Every man, woman, child that has ever lived on the face of the earth from Adam until Jesus comes again will be saved. That's the other end. You say, wait a minute. What about the in-between part? Well, the in-between part is what we call in theological terms Arminianism. But it's completely and totally Unbiblical. Because the Bible clearly teaches that Christ died as a substitute. Therefore, everyone for whom Christ substitutes receives the benefits of the substitution. So either it's some people get it or all people get it. But this middle point that Arminians take where Christ died... But not everybody for whom Christ died is going to get the benefit of it. But not everybody is going to be saved. And not just a few are going to get it. Only those who choose to get it are going to get it. That's not found in the Bible anywhere. Now we know that the Bible teaches that it can't be this, everybody being saved, because the Bible clearly teaches that there have been those who have already died and departed and are separated from God. Remember Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man lived abundantly in this life, but whenever he died, he died and went to hell. And Lazarus, who didn't have anything, the Lord saved him. He went to be with the Lord. And the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell I said, man, can you take a drop of water and drop it on my tongue for I'm tormented in these flames? I said, you can't do it. I don't want to do it. Can Lazarus just give me a little water? No. In your day you had all things you wanted, all things you needed. Lazarus had nothing. Now he's gone to his reward and he's got everything. You've got nothing. Can you show me just a little mercy? Do that. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that there will be people in hell. The very fact that the Bible teaches that there will be a people in hell says that this universal salvation is untrue. And this Armenian view that says that Christ died, and some of the people for whom Christ died may end up in hell is untrue because there is no place in the Scripture that teaches that anybody for whom Christ died will not receive the benefits of His death. Nowhere in Scripture can you find that anywhere. Therefore, God has a people, and this is exactly what it's saying here. My righteous servant justifies many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and shall divide the spoil with the strong? This is the inheritance. We talk about this all the time—the inheritance of God. And the Bible says that we are heirs; we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. The 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 spoils that go to Christ—guess what? We get to share in those. He had poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And He bore the sin, here it is again, of many. He didn't bear the sin of everyone, but He bore the sin of many. And He made intercession for the transgressors. What transgressors? His people. The transgressions of His people. Therefore, the transgressors are the ones who are His people. Those are the ones that He died for. He died for them. He made intercession for them. So what did the suffering servant do? He suffered. He took on the wrath of God upon himself. He took our sins upon himself, but he experienced the full wrath of God, and through that justified the many. Now turn with me, if you would, and I want to tie this back to Philippians, because for some reason the Lord had me thinking about that beforehand, and took me to Isaiah. But let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. It says in verse 8 and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He was found in fashion as a man, as we just read. Why, why was he in the fashion of a man? Because he came as the substitute for the transgressors. He had to be in the form of a transgressor. To make substitution as a transgressor. Even though he never transgressed. It says being in the form and fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient. Unto the death. Unto death. Even the death of the cross. But look at verse 9. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven. Things in earth and things under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brethren, it is through Christ's humiliation, through his coming down and taking himself of no reputation, that we were justified. But by that God not only justified us, but he glorified his son. Because by that crucifixion, by that being obedient unto death and the death of the cross, the Lord now highly exalts Him and has given Him a name above every name. And there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. Anybody got any questions or anything you'd like to add? And comments? Alright. Gracious Father, we thank you once again for this day and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the perfect salvation, Lord, that has been your eternal purpose before the ages began. We thank you for Christ and his humanity as he came and took on the form of a servant. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you do, all that you do for us on our behalf and for the righteousness that is ours because of you. We thank the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ sent from God that comes to us and reveals these things, giving us faith to believe upon them, letting us know that we are His, testifying with our Spirit. That we are Christ's. And that the benefits that Christ has died for. We have received in Christ. Or may we ever be mindful of those things. And may we be found faithful walking in the spirit. By walking in faith. Of what Christ has done on our behalf. Or may we never look to our own understanding. May we never look to our own flesh. And the works thereof. For righteousness. May we never rely upon self-righteousness self-holiness, but may we always keep in view the wonderful works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the things that you looked for. Those are the things that you accepted. And those were the things that justified us so that there is there for now no condemnation. There is remission of sin. There is never any more need for forgiveness because all has been forgiven. And that there is no charge that could be laid to your elect. What a wonderful, perfect salvation. And we thank Christ for it, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.